Welcome. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. I welcome you today. Our special guest is, uh, is Alec Ross. He is um, going to be speaking on innovation and any number of other uh, topics that relate to his job working for Hillary Clinton at the State Department. Uh, but he has also, I think importantly, uh, been interested and involved uh, for his, you know, much of his, as you can see, short life so far. I, I turned 39. <laughs> I, I turned 39 this month and I have three kids, so I don't feel well, you look like I don't feel young. I would, say, I would say 23. Is that, you, you know, know what? That sounds good to me. <laughs> uh, but what I think has been so impressive and interesting about his life and life history is that he has spent so much of his energy and time trying to do something that uh, is extremely important and I think is well recognized, and that is to, to shrink the inequality uh, between classes when it comes to technology and in other areas as well. Um, I'm from, he and I share being both from Appalachia. I don't know whether that has anything to do with how you feel, but Charleston, does. West Virginia, where you're from is, you know, I'm from Greenville, Tennessee, they share a lot. Yes. Uh, in any event, it is my uh, Nico Mele, who is uh, one of uh, Alex's good friends, uh, as some of you know and all of you should, uh, became a father for the second time yesterday, most happily, uh, with a healthy baby, but uh, he will not be joining us, not surprising. Uh, Alec Ross, we're very glad to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate y'all taking time this afternoon for me to be able to speak a little bit about 21st century statecraft. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Great. I'm going to speak for about 20 minutes, but I want to limit it to that so that there can be some more question and answer and discussion that we have. So I'm going to, I'm going to run through a little bit of a, of a presentation. Um, so my role working as Senior Advisor for Innovation to Secretary of State Clinton is principally rooted in responding to disruptive change. Uh, foreign policy as it was conducted 20, 30, and 40 years ago, I would argue, while the stakes were just as high, it was somewhat less complex in that at least America's foreign policy was principally organized around the binary construct of the challenge between uh, democracy and communism. So in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, even things like our Africa policy and our Latin American policy, more often than not, it flowed from uh, a, a fairly straightforward binary construct. Since the Cold War, our statecraft and our foreign policy has become much, much more complex and much more challenged um, because we were organized physically um, in ways to respond to the Cold War. And now we increasingly see that uh, the world is more complex, that there are rising powers. There's an increasing proliferation of non-state-based threats from things like pandemics to climate change to terrorism, which increasingly dominate our statecraft. And there are two areas of, of disruptive change which we're seeking to understand and harness in service of our diplomatic and development goals that I personally focus on. 
uh, and they relate to demographics and to the increasing power and ubiquity of connection technologies. So first, demographically, if you look out over the last 10 years, three very significant shifts taking place right now. A youth bulge, particularly in the developing world, the rising power um, and, and increasing size of diaspora networks, and the changing role of women around the globe. Number two, the, the increasingly ubiquitous and powerful connection technologies. And when I say connection technologies, I mean technologies that connect people to information and to each other, whether that's mo mobile, social, social media, internet, what have you. Over the last 10 years, there's been about a 500% increase, both in access towards mobile handsets and in access to the internet. So there is, there is a nothing short of explosion in terms of access to these tools. The best known example of which that I give is what was fairly recent travel to the East Congo when I got off a, you know, a UN plane in absolutely positively the middle of nowhere in the East Congo in a place with a per capita GDP of less than $200 and my BlackBerry chirped to life with a choice of three different mobile networks. And what's interesting about this is not sort of the, the story that we've all heard a hundred times, you know, sort of internet yay, or the internet's changing everything. You're far too sophisticated an audience. You heard that 15 years ago, it was true then, but what I think is much more illustrative and more important than that are some of the wide-ranging implications of the increasing power and ubiquity of these tools going forward. But I also think it's important to actually rewind a little bit and begin to understand some of the present-day dynamics and disruptions in, the con in its proper historic context. And you know, three things that immediately leap to mind are being able to rewind 90 years, 150 years, and 300 years. So first thinking 300 years, thinking about the evolution of infrastructure. If you think about the evolution of infrastructure over the last 300 years, ports were 18th century infrastructure. Railroads were 19th century infrastructure. Highways were 20th century infrastructure. Broadband networks are 21st century infrastructure. So infrastructure today has really evolved into something that's principally about the diffusion of information over communications networks, the internet, mass media. If you think about the last 100 years, what have been the most pervasive and what have been the most pervasive mass media types? hundred years ago, it was the newspaper. Ninety years ago, it was radio. Tomorrow is actually the 90th anniversary of the establishment of the first commercial radio station. Then it was television. Today, it's increasingly the case that people get their information from the internet. Communications, think about 150 years ago. The evolution was from post telegraph, to telephone, to the internet. So what's interesting is to think about all of these things as sort of a triple paradigm shift where our infrastructure, our mass media, and our communications are all coming, are all now 
driving towards this, this common platform, which I think is very interesting and I think important to understand its historic context. And most people think about this as a relatively recent phenomenon, but what I would argue is actually most important as it relates to our foreign policy is a contest buried within this and a contest, a competition, a struggle that I think actually dates back about 2,300 years. And that's a struggle between open and closed societies. I think that if one really looks behind the headlines and tries to understand what's happening in places like Iran, China, but also in the United States, so many of these struggles, I would argue, are really a combat between open and closed societies, or that which helps open to society and that which makes society more closed. This is not a case of the United States in all of its wisdom looking out over the world and saying, oh, isn't it interesting to see the struggle between open and closed societies around the world? Actually, I think that if you look at and, and try to reconcile America's policies related to internet freedom, facilitating the free flow of information over the internet and over our global communications networks, juxtaposed with the increasing de demands being made in the cybersecurity realm and with internet surveillance and such things, the United States too is struggling with this competition between being open and closed. I'm going to very, very quickly run through two examples of, of I think, past precedent. Um, one example of that is from about 300 BC, when one of the first open societies, and when I say open society, I mean that economic prosperity is not confined to the elites, that there is cultural and religious pluralism, and where there is some level of participation um, in terms of government processes comes from the third century BC in Alexandria. So much of the roots of modern science, modern mathematics, modern technology have its roots in Alexandria. It's fascinating. It's, it was then that geometry, chemistry, alchemy, surgery as a formal science, all of these things had their roots in the third century BC. And it was because of the establishment of the Library of Alexandria, it was because of the allowance for dissent and academic engagement that all of this was possible. Now, I would argue that all of this actually had a, had a specific day when it came crashing to an end. Uh, 215 AD, when Roman Emperor Caracalla came to Alexandria and saw himself satirized, um, sat, political satire being one of those things which is most characteristic of political openness, he saw himself satirized on political, uh, on wall art and argued that every Alexandrian youth, uh, every Alexandrian fight, male fighting age and younger be put to death. So 20,000 Alexandrian males were killed. The Library of Alexandria was, 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 um, was burned down. There was a crackdown on, um, on academic pluralism, as it was known. As it was known. And so ended uh, the open society that was, that was Alexandria. One more example of this 
nothing opened society more, I would argue, and nothing did more to end the Dark Ages than the creation of the printing press in 1441. Um, it was because of the printing press, I would argue, that things like the rise of the Age of Enlightenment were possible, the Protestant Reformation, the rise of the nation state as an alternative to a closed theocracy. But this didn't happen in 1442, the year after the invention of the printing press. Rather, there were literally centuries of litigation against the openness that was created by the invention of the printing press. Just one example of which that comes to mind was a little bit more than 200 years later uh, with the licensing order of 1643 when the English monarchy was trying to think about how it was going to contend with the dissent made possible by virtue of the printing press. And what they came up with was something that said that you can only print a book, you can only publish if one of ten people allow you to. This being one of them, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And by way of illustration, when the Archbishop of Canterbury found, for example, that, that a, a Puritan named William Prynne had published things without authorization, he ordered that his ears be cut off and that SD be branded on his cheeks for sedition. So open versus closed, the allowing the free flow of information versus cracking down against it. When you hear about things that are taking place in countries like Iran or things that are taking place in China or things that are taking place in American society where we are trying to reconcile being an open versus closed society, these are not necessarily new dynamics. They're playing out today. Um, and one thing that I would suggest to all of you that I think is very illustrative of some of the disruption taking place in our foreign policy by virtue of changing demographics and changing tools can actually be explained by uh, a, somebody who was a fellow here at Harvard in the 1950s named Thomas Kuhn. And he had this remarkable, what's become sort of canonical analysis of paradigm shift where, which is essentially that normal scientific work is bounded by a set of assumptions and rules that we assume to be true and that we seek to validate through experimentation. What Kuhn said, though, is that major paradigm shifts actually don't take place because of um, incremental innovation, but rather because innovators see patterns in anomalies. And it's because of the recognition and, and building a framework around these anomalies that true paradigm shifts take place. So what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that there are a series of anomalies that are taking place around the United States, around the world right now, some of which are, I, I would argue, cheapened by the traditional media framing of you know, most technology reporting into just Twitter or Facebook, but rather by a diffusion of technologies that are being wildly disruptive. Um, in just the last month, I've seen some fascinating examples of this from e-government being delivered more powerfully through the e-panchayat model in rural India than it's being delivered anywhere else in the world. 
to the most advanced mobile to the arguably the most some of the most advanced financial service innovation taking place in Kenya of all places where 7 million people in a country of 38 million people now do all of their mobile do all of their banking through their cell phone um, good luck paying a cabbie in Nairobi if you want to pay for cash pay with cash right now which is just remarkable um, to a continued pattern of dissent being exercised um, over communications networks and political movements being increasingly online-based. Witness the Obama campaign in 2008. So what we've seen over the last two to three years is a remarkable number of anomalies where technology has become exceedingly disruptive. Um, but where I think we're beginning to see some patterns which illustrate its powers, but also, I would argue, its limitations. Um, one of the things that we've seen with the increasing power and ubiquity of connection technologies is that it can be used just as easily by malignant actors as by people who would seek to do good. Um, as Hillary Clinton said in a speech on internet freedom, technology is much like nuclear power, which can be used to both fuel and destroy a city. Just like steel can be used to build a hospital, so too can it be used to build machetes. So I think it's very, very important as we think about the disrupting impacts of technology and telecommunications to not be utopian about it, um, but rather to recognize that these things are used just as easily and oftentimes to far greater effect by people who would seek to, to do harm than those who would seek to do good. Uh, some of the most brilliant innovators in the technology space uh, are extremists. Uh, if you go to an internet cafe in the Beirut suburbs, um, one of the really interesting innovations that you can see is you can go in and see you know, teenage boys playing video games. But what Hezbollah has done is they have modified these video games so that instead of shooting monsters, you're shooting Israeli soldiers. Um, some of the most sophisticated communicators uh, using the internet for persuasion are um, radical imams who are trying to draw in impressionable youth and draw them into um, a life of of extremism that's certainly countervailing to American interests. So I think it's very, very important um, whenever we talk about the power and increasing diffusion of these tools to not think that you can just sprinkle the internet on a challenge and we're going to all grow up to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You know, point in fact, the more I see of the power of technology, the more that I increasingly recognize um, that anybody can become sophisticated about its use. Uh, what I'm going to do now, just in the interest of time, is I'm going to give just a very few examples of some of what we've done at the State Department uh, recently, which are interesting and I think which might be representative of some of what is coming in the future. And then I just want to open things up um, to some discussion. Uh, so I want to give two examples of what we did recently in uh, Haiti after the earthquake. 
One thing that we recognized in, in Haiti was that the communication, that the emergency response systems were completely wiped out by the earthquake. And um, as a result, sort of, there was absolutely no coordination being done in terms of the delivery of aid. And so one thing that we did was we set up a system, basically sort of a 911 system, but because there were literally no operators and because there were no call centers, there was no way to traffic the information, we did it all over SMS uh, to a short code, 4636, where people could literally SMS in distress calls. And over the course of about two weeks, uh, 80,000 80,000 messages from 30,000 Haitians came in through this SMS system. Uh, we recruited about 1,600 French Creole speakers from the Haitian diaspora to translate the message. And then we had a nonprofit-based supply chain management um, organization develop software which would, which would route the message um, to the appropriate responder, whether that was the Red Cross, USAID, the Coast Guard, or whomever. But what's interesting about this, and you can't, I don't think you can read any of that, but if you look, some of the slopes on the graph at the top in red, you know, you can imagine what some of those in the earliest days of um, the disaster, you know, those go to things like reporting a death, missing persons, things like this, to if you look at the spikes in the green in the, green and the blue in the middle, uh, that's about a week later where people are reporting things like fuel shortages, need for health services, need for medical equipment and supplies. And what's interesting was that the efficacy, the relatively low cost and the relatively high impact of this donor management system was absolutely fascinating and I think important and something that I think we can apply in emergency response the world around. Another example that I wanted to give, in part because it was, it, there's an article about it in this morning's New York Times, which I think is a very good article, um, was about something that we set up uh, literally the day of the earthquake, which was trying to figure out how we could directly engage the American people uh, to in response to the earthquake in Haiti. And where what we did is we set up a program where people could text message the word Haiti to a short code, 90999. And over the course of about two weeks, we raised a little more than $30 million uh, through that program. And what's notable about it is that it, there was a group of about five or six of us in the earliest days who built a social media-based campaign which made it become viral in social media spaces, which the mainstream media then picked up on and which then sort of blew it into the size which it then became. And so what we're trying to do in briefest terms at the State Department is figure out ways if all of this disruption is taking place by virtue of changing demographics, by virtue of changing technologies, how can we harness it in service of our diplomatic and development goals? Not say it's good, not say it's bad, but if the world is changing, how do we adapt to it? Especially within, you know, as, as tradition-bound an institution as our own. Um, it's been an interesting 18 months, uh, you know, going on two years in the administration, but this is one area which thank goodness, has been very inclusive politically 
So it hasn't been anything that has become tagged as liberal or conservative or Democrat or Republican. It's something that everybody, people on both sides of the aisle have been wonderfully supportive of. Richard Lugar actually recently wrote an article that he penned himself um, in part to make the point that the innovation taking place at the State Department, 21st century statecraft, is, is something that is inclusive. Some of the things that we've done to intervene in closed societies, um, some of which has leaked into the press, um, has been, I would argue, very, very positive and um, very, very provocative. I'll close with, with one example um, of something that you might find interesting. Um, let's see if I can find it. Here we go. Syria. Syria is one of the most closed societies on planet Earth. And ever since the al-Assads have been in power since 1970, um, there has been no dissent which has gone unpunished in Syria. Um, I and some colleagues went to Syria in May and June of this year, where part of what we were doing was reversing um, a long-standing practice of ours, a long-standing sanctions regime of ours where we kept American products and services out. And what we, were, what we chose to do was to put some policies in place that would facilitate the entry of technologies which supported the free flow of information. A few months after um, our trip to Syria was what I believe to be the first example of a successful human rights campaign in the 40 years of Ba'athist rule in Syria where a couple weeks ago um, some people took video of kids being beaten by teachers in their classrooms. They posted it to um, the internet, to a social media website, and literally thousands of Syrians um, publicly got behind this campaign and supported this campaign. And the Ba'athists in Syria were forced to decide whether they were going to accede to the demands and punish the teachers, uh, accede to the demands of this dissent which had grown up on the internet, or conversely, were they going to turn around and do what 40 years of recent history would have suggested, which is to identify all the three, four, five thousand people behind the campaign and punish them all. And what they chose to do was to accede to the demands of the movement. And so what we've seen now in just in the last 30 days is what I believe to be the first successful human rights campaign in the 40 years of Ba'athist rule in Syria. So just as we are having to contend in the United States with the disruptions caused by these technologies, so too are people in closed societies like Syria. So with that, I'll stop talking. Thanks, Alec. I'd like to ask the first question, then we'll, we will open it. Actually, I have, it's a, it's Two questions. First, why in 300 BC Egypt did the first sort of version of an open society appear? I mean, was it mm -hmm. was it evolving from Athens? Was it uh, was it something to do with the with the political culture of Mesopotamia or Egypt? I don't know. But the second thing is, you have framed this struggle between open and closed. Um, in, I infer from what you say that the that you think that the the side of the angels is on the side of the open. Uh, on the other hand, you have also pointed out that that you know there is a very on, much an ongoing struggle about this, 
and that open comes with risks, especially with that kind of jujitsu that the open is actually um, becomes a kind of a perverted version of itself in an effort to to control in a different kind of way. Um, so, one, Egypt, and two, how is this? Is there a is, is there more of a moral balance between this open and closed idea, uh, or is it genuinely something that you are satisfied in your own mind uh, is weighted in terms of human progress on the side of open? Yeah. So both good questions. As to the first, as to Egypt, I think that. You know, the history suggests there are a variety of different factors which led to the explosion of scholarship that took place um, in 3rd century B.C. Alexandria, but and is sort of appropriate to this venue, um, the killer app. The one thing that sort of created, that caused things to really break out there was the, the foundation of the Library of Alexandria. So it was creating an institution that Archimedes could go to, that you know, people from around the Mediterranean and elsewhere could go to and collaborate. So rather than scholarship being a solitary act, it could become a collaborative act. And so I think that it's appropriate in thinking about an institution like Harvard. Harvard is much more than a collection of individuals, but there are those things which are collective, which then produce content breakthroughs that otherwise would be impossible. So I think that the killer app, so to speak, in the third century BC in Alexandria was the founding of the, the Library of Alexandria. As to your second question, um, I think that you yourself, yeah, I think that you arrived at the nuance, which I think is very important. I think it's very important to not be naive um, when, th- when one thinks about um, the tensions between open and closed societies. On the one hand, I don't think any of us would would condone the United States becoming a quote-unquote closed society where economic prosperity is confined to the elites, where cultural and religious norms are imposed from on high with a loss of democratic institutions. Conversely, um, it's important to understand that openness can have Um, it's dark sides. So think about WikiLeaks, for example. Um, WikiLeaks was made possible by technology. You know, just downloading tens of thousands of classified documents is something that an individual with a computer 15 years ago, they couldn't have downloaded that much content. But because we live in a bandwidth-rich environment where computers today have the storage and processing power of something that was military grade 20 years ago, it's now possible. So I think on balance, I I think that it is an implicitly American value um, to want to foster openness, but it has to be balanced with um, reasonable security concerns. Um, One thing that I think is uniquely American, I think most Americans understand this, is We want our government to protect us, but we also want to be protected from our government. It's this fascinating dichotomy that's very difficult to reconcile in many cases, which I would argue is very distinctly and almost uniquely American. 
And so the way that that, that that is playing out today, I think, is illustrative of some of the tensions between being open and closed. I would ask if you have a question just to indicate, raise your hand, and I'll get a, a mic to you because uh, we need, uh, we, are, we are recording this. Okay, so is that sufficient? Okay, go ahead. white men in white shirts and red ties talking with other white men in white shirts wearing red ties. Flags flying in the background. Flags flying in the background. So um, I agree with that. And I imagine that you're probably something of an anomaly at the State Department. Now, the talk you gave is really big picture and long term. Yep. Gutenberg's revolution taking 200 years. Um, how do you, bureaucratically, yep. how do you keep the momentum going? Yeah, that's a good question. How do you get to pervade the State Department? So that's a good question. So the way that I would answer that first is when I talk about white guys with white shirts and red ties talking to other white guys with white shirts and red ties with flags flying in the background, we have to understand that what that is descriptive of is the formal interactions between sovereign nation states. And, and the formal interactions between sovereign nation states continues and should continue to be the basic building blocks and the basic business of the State Department. It's what we're built to do. It's what we're best at. The whole notion of 21st century statecraft is how do we broaden that? How do we go beyond that Cold War construct for, of you know, formal interactions between sovereign nation states and produce diplomatic and development goals that we otherwise wouldn't arrive at? Um, you know, first of all, just where I'm situated in the organization is designed to try to institutionalize some of this. So, you know, it's, it's every two, three, four years, you know, a new batch of, you know, people who think they're really smart come into government with lots of big ideas, get some articles written, have a couple, you know, have a success or two or three. But the ultimate measure of their success is the degree to which things are institutionalized. Um, so... Where I and my team are physically located in the office of the secretary is designed so that we can work horizontally, so that we can work sort of across all of the State Department bureaucracy, so that when we do projects, um, it's not as sort of this one-off rogue band of you know, innovators, but rather that it's very collaborative. So you know, we've got a security-related project right now in Ciudad Juarez that we're developing, and that's hand-in-glove with our Western Hemisphere Bureau and with our embassy in Mexico City. So, you know, our projects that we're trying to stand up in the East Congo, we're working with our Africa Bureau and with the embassies there. So the idea is that rather than it being something separate and aside from, quote unquote, the bureaucracy, that it's something that's embedded within it. And then when, and frankly, when I recruit people to the State Department right now, what I'm doing less often is recruiting them to come work for me than it is to sprinkle them throughout the organization. Um, the second thing is we, we have to take some of the whiz-bang innovations that we've done and institutionalize them as a matter of practice and as a matter of policy. So one thing that Hillary Clinton, an, an idea that she got from Secretary of Defense Gates, actually, was to do a quadrennial development and diplomatic review. Um, 
this is an area where the military has just been better than we have. Um, they have done strategic planning and they align resources to go with long-term four-year strategic planning. Any of you who have ever worked at a private sector company, whether you're selling you know, widgets or Dixie Cups, you did strategic planning, multi-year strategic planning, and you aligned your resources with what that strategic plan was. We at the State Department had never done that before. We are an almost entirely reactive organization. So one thing that Hillary Clinton, to her great credit, has done is put in place this quadrennial diplomatic and development review, which we're going to publish within the next 60 days, um, where what we try to do is establish practices and programs and policies prospectively looking out over a four-year period. And so to your question about how do you institutionalize it, I put a lot of my time into that process so that we can make sure that we have the right programs, the right policies, and the right people so that this becomes less about the efforts of a handful of sort of tech-infected young people and more about the institution. Sure. I'm interested in your, in your time-lapse issue about, for instance, how long it took for the press to um, One of the interesting things was that the young Chinese kids in Tiananmen mm -hmm. were getting faxes back yep. in the United States almost instantaneously as to how what they were doing was playing out in terms of the world view. And as we know, there's been some impacts in China, but it's, it's going to take a long time mm -hmm. to come through. But I'm curious as to what you think the immediate impact of this kind of thinking is. Just take relations, say, with North Korea, with, yep. with Iran, or with some third country that you'd like to Just to say some idea of how this impacts the thinking in relation to those countries that we have today. Sure. Now, let me, get a, let me ask a clarifying question. Are you asking about the impact within the country or the... or, or no, no, and, how, and how we approach those yes. countries and what relations... Right. Uh, we would, how it would affect our relations approaching them. Right. It's a great question. Uh, so what, this was something that played out over the course of 2009. Because of the rising power of these technologies... We constantly butted up against either policy guidelines where we're like, all right, well, are we allowed to call Twitter and tell them to stay up in the Iranian election aftermath? Is there any guidance for how you, for, for what you do under situations like this? More often than not, there wasn't any guidance because these tools were all new. And so over the course of 2009, it was a period of experimentation. And sometimes, you know, that experimentation would become extremely provocative. So, for example, in the case of the Iranian election aftermath, where, um, you know, a member of my team did intervene. This is one thing that did get into the public domain, where, you know, it became public that we did intervene to talk to Twitter to stay up um, so that people could continue to share information and, and collaborate. Secretary gave what I think is going to in retrospect, be one of the most important speeches of the Obama administration. She gave it on January 21st of this year, and it was about internet freedom, where she set forth a series of very clear guidelines about what we believe to be appropriate in terms of engaging with countries like North Korea, like Iran, like Syria, and others as it goes to these issues. And in short, we're gonna, we're, we are being aggressive and I, I think appropriately aggressive. You know, one thing that I'll point you to is a quote by uh, 
Thomas Jefferson, who said the will of the people is the only legitimate foundation of any government, and to to protect its free expression should be our first object. Centuries-long values related to the freedom of expression, the freedom of the press, the freedom of assembly, these things are increasingly organized online. Freedom of assembly is organized in social media. Freedom of the press, as you know, is increasingly done, is exercised, particularly in the developing world, over the internet. Freedom of expression is less done with people in bullhorns on, in Harvard Square than it is on the blogosphere. So what the secretary said in her internet freedom doctrine is, to the same degree to which the United States would unabashedly and very proudly protect and promote those values globally, as we did in decades and centuries past, so too are we going to do prospectively in the years ahead as it relates to the internet. And so sometimes that means doing things that are considered to be very provocative um, and, frankly, not particularly appreciated. Um, you know, the Chinese have, have, have made no secret of the degree to which they find um, our Internet freedom policies countervailing to their own national sovereignty. But in other cases, I think it's put us in a position to be very effective brokers. So if you look, for example, at some of the discussions that have taken place between India and Persian Gulf nations with BlackBerry and talking about what are and are not, um, what is and is, is not appropriate access to personal communications, I think we've been able to play a, a generally productive diplomatic role. Well, but, but to what extent does it have effect? For instance, mm-hmm. um, she's going to be in Vietnam. Um, right. uh, I think she was... Yesterday? But yesterday. Yeah. And, there's, and there are pressures on her that have developed through the internet to raise human rights issues yep. in terms of the Vietnamese having recently arrested various people who are, uh, who are taking this. But that, does it push does it push the State Department or push the Secretary or lower level officials to, to do things that perhaps we're not ready to do? In other words, does it take us beyond the level of comfort in dealing with some of these places that can become counterproductive? Yeah, well, and when that happens, we just don't do it. I mean, you know, we can't have a set of policies related to Internet freedom that are divorced from our broader strategic interests. So, you know, there are countries that are allies of ours, uh, like, you know, let's take Morocco, um, but which scores very poorly on freedom of the press and freedom of speech issues. So, you know... We are obviously going to think twice before we bash Morocco publicly um, because we have a... What's that? Yeah, but because we have a far broader relationship. So all of these, you know, it's not black and white. All of these are very, as you can imagine, nuanced discussions within the State Department. But what the Secretary has done is said, you know what, this is something that's important. Yes, trade is important. So too is this. You know, so it's, it's, it's not the only factor that determines what our what our interactions with, say, the government of Vietnam are going to be, but it's now one of a small number of issues that carries significant weight, whereas it wouldn't have two or three years ago. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Fred Taylor. I'm a National Security Fellow as well as an Air Force officer. My question is this. Uh, Secretary Clinton had made some statements on the value of smart power, the uh, strategic use of uh, the uh, hard power and soft power tools. 
In your mind, where do you think we're going for the State Department in applying those smart power tools to the cyber realm? In particular, this discussion you just had here talks a little bit. Is there a strategic plan or a strategic cyber plan that says we are going to target uh, communication or trying to further foster diplomatic rights, human rights activities via the Internet, and how might we go about doing that? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, I think the, the short answer to your question is yes. Um, you know, we are, we, we do have plans and we are trying to act as intelligently as possible for how we can advance our interests using, you, you know, in the cyber realm. That said, I think it's very important, again, to go back to an earlier point of mine, to not be utopian. Um, you know, you can't view the Internet as the answer to everything. Um, these are incredibly powerful tools, uh, but they're only tools. And, and part of why I continue to try to put these things in what I think to be their appropriate historic context is to understand both their power and their limitations. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. There was recently an article in The New Yorker by Malcolm Gladwell um, that said, you know, the revolution will not be tweeted. And he basically went through the civil rights movement and talked about, you know, hey, you know, look at these acts of courage and, you know, they didn't have Twitter. You know, they didn't tweet their revolution. They made social change because they had the, they had the will to sit at lunch counters that they were told they weren't allowed to sit at. You know, juxtapose that with the very soft ties that tend to ha that people have, you know, sitting in z zip code 02138 doing something on the internet. I, I think that Malcolm Gladwell really missed the point there. And where he should have been thinking about technology and the civil rights movement was a newly ubiquitous, um, increasingly powerful technology um, in the 50s and 60s called television. Where nobody here, I think, would say television caused the civil rights movement. Civil technology didn't cause the civil rights movement. But it did play a powerful role amplifying uh, the images of peaceful African Americans in Alabama being hit with high power fire hoses. And I can't help but think that that impacted people's states of mind. You know, people were able to see uh, school children uh, try to integrate, you know, Little Rock Central High School in Arkansas. Uh, a speech to a couple hundred thousand people in the mall given by Martin Luther King was amplified to millions of people. Uh, who knows if John F. Kennedy would have beaten Richard Nixon in 1960 if not for the impact of the televised debate. So the reason why I say all of this is that television obviously played an extraordinarily powerful and important role in the civil rights movement, but you don't say that, that TV caused the civil rights movement. Similarly, thinking about your question and thinking about the role of technology within the domain of our foreign policy challenges today, we can't segregate out technology. Rather, we have to recognize them as tools to help achieve a broader set of goals. Uh, um, my name is Tyler Eagleside. I'm a student here at Kennedy School. Um, in the example you said about Iran and Twitter, um, I mean, the State Department's ability to work with Twitter certainly helped in that situation. 
I could think of other situations in China with Microsoft and Yahoo sort of complying with China's request to honor the Great Firewall that private companies may not be quite so, it's a different sort of relationship. My question is, how do you, in your role at the State Department, is, do you find it helpful for the private companies, or how does that dynamic between the State Department's foreign policy goals and the profit motivations of the private companies play out? Yeah, so this, that's a very good question. Um, as a very practical matter, a lot of this work plays out in the private sector um, because these global communications networks are owned and operated by the private sector, most of whom more often than not are market share and profit oriented and who, who don't necessarily want to be tools of American foreign policy interests. So it's complex, you know, in certain cases. Um, we are able to ask companies to take certain things into consideration in their business dealings, and they say yes. In other cases, they say no. And so, you know, it, it's interesting. I oftentimes am criticized for having very close ties to Silicon Valley, and these are ties that, frankly, I don't apologize for. Um, that said, you know, I think that the conversations with some of these companies are oftentimes much tougher than people surmise. They just happen to be done behind closed doors. And I think that one thing that's important, one thing that's good in my role is that I don't, I don't have to worry about pro people's profit motives. You know, I tend to cost these companies money. Um, you know, whether it's asking them to go into countries in the developing world because it'll provide a good for society, but they won't make money off of it, to, you know, getting them engaged in something of a political nature that's going to cause them nothing but a headache. So. Part of what I try to do in this is hew very closely to what our foreign policy interests are and divorce myself from what, from what you know, their market interests are. They can make their own decisions and, and come up with their own balance. Alec, would you, how would you characterize the, the sort of uh, positive, negative feelings in general of radical Islam toward this kind of technology. Obviously, they're using it in some cases in ways to further their aims. On the other hand, this is opening doors that they have controlled very, very carefully for a long time. How does, if there is such a thing as the, as the militant, you know, yep. Islamic perspective on this? So there, there is, and it's very distinct. It's very interesting. So they, they, they open the door and then they close it. So the, the very interesting thing that they do is they use these tools to identify, target, and recruit, um, more often than not, 13 to 20-year-old boys. Um, and then as soon as they are fully recruited, recruited, they more often than not are shut down um, from those networks. They re they, they, once they've recruited them, they encourage them to not go back except to those websites which are jihadi websites. So what's fascinating is to see the degree to which Hezbollah or Al-Qaeda or others are very sophisticated about you know, almost doing market research and getting people. But once they've got them, it's no longer in their interest um, for these young people to be exploring the online world. So what oftentimes happens is you can see one of the patterns of, uh, one of, the patterns of recruitment and indoctrination is isolation. So if you read any of the reporting that's been done, for example, about recruitment into the Taliban, 
oftentimes these, these young men, um, and I say young men because I, the examples that I know are of young men, are oftentimes recruited out of very dynamic, very cosmopolitan, middle income and upper middle income households in cities like Karachi. Um, but what then happens is, not, is, is they are isolated. Um, so that the radicalization, it's easier for the radicalization to further take root. And so that's, they, that's the same practice that they use as it relates to the internet. Question? Yes. My name is George Mokray. I live in Central Square, and I'm interested in a slightly different technology. In order for all of the internet, the cell phones, all of those things to work, you have to have electricity. 1.6 to 1.8 billion people in the world don't have access to electricity. One of the things that NATO and US forces started doing before we invaded Afghanistan was dropping solar dynamo radios into Afghanistan. So hand crank little solar, you have radio so that our forces could broadcast. USAID is doing a program in Sudan, I understand, doing the same thing for political education, for democratization, hopefully, over the next five years. Problem is, there is a spark gap. From my understanding of everything that's gone out from NATO, from USAID, all those solar panels, all those hand cranks, only charge the internal hardwired battery. Nobody has thought about battery switching for AA batteries, which are the most, uh, most ubiquitous batteries in the world. So you could have an LED light, you have something else, a cell phone, those kinds of things. So there's a spark gap even in something as simple as a solar technology, electrical technology. And we're talking about social media, which has a lot more complexity. So I'm wondering about those kinds of spark gaps. Yeah, so look, it's chapter one, page one. Um, I, I, I absolutely think that the, all of the wonderful innovations that we've seen and for all that we've done in government for the last 18 months, I think that there are more spark gaps than there are sparks. Um, and I think that the next five years are going to be fascinating in terms of the kinds of innovations that are unleashed in, for example, you know, bringing electrification to otherwise isolated areas. And I, and, and I hope that's not a trite answer, but it's an honest one, which is simply to say that while we're very excited about some of the kinds of things that we've done you know, with doing aid coordination over SMS or innovative uses of social media or what have you. I think that particularly within the, de the development realm, um, it's very, very early. And I think that the opportunity to do good here is fascinating. If I were a student at, if I were a graduate student at Harvard right now, I would be digging deep into what are those breakthrough innovations that can be applied within the development domain, which might produce results that otherwise haven't been arrived upon. So chapter one, page one. Alec Ross, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you.